And here we are, at the last of our episodes in Iraq. Seems fitting to end on a call to prayer at the Erbil Citadel. I've been doing most of the recording, including this episode's interview, in the corner of my room at the Farik Hotel, but life in Erbil is really about the streets, the endless blocks of food carts and lamb stew joints on Iskan Street, the kids darting in and out of the archways of the market, and more than anything, the imposing sight of the citadel, a sand-colored fortress atop a mound that rises almost 100 feet above the rest of the flat city. This structure is the oldest continually inhabited place on Earth. There have been people living, building, and dying on that exact spot since at least 5000 BC. And the dramatic height of the citadel comes from all the layers of life, the mud brick buildings that rose and collapsed and then were built on top of, over and over, throughout the millennia. I feel like we've been talking a lot about time in these Iraq episodes, the idea that a place this ancient must be able to persevere through the agonies of the present. The layers of life beneath this fortress have to give you some sort of optimism, or at least a longer lens on the current tragedies of Iraq. In this episode's interview, we are reaching deep into one of those tragedies, the disappearance of photojournalist Kamran Najam. Kamran's brother Ahmed turned away from the conservative religion of his own family by not only searching for his brother, but also by adopting Kamran's life mission as his own. As the head of Metrography, the agency that his brother started with American photojournalist Sebastian Meyer, Ahmed is helping over 70 Iraqi journalists work to tell their own story. That, to me, says it all. Legacy, longevity, layers. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you, Iraq. Love and luck to you both. I'm Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Let's get into this this drink we have here. Tell me what we're, as we uh, pull the, the foil tabs off of these things. Boy, once again, I'm, I'm going to let my fingernails grow out before I come to Iraq again <laughs> so I can open all the foil. Yes. That is the sound of opening a Jumex pineapple coconut flavored drink. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Uh, yep. I know that flavor. That's good. Especially it's very hot and sunny outside. Nice cold juice. Why did you choose uh, Jumex as the thing we should drink? This is the last drink that I drank with my brother in 2014 when I was driving <laughs> my when, car. When you were driving, you were driving him around and you guys had some juices. I drove him to Kirkuk and that was the last time that I saw him. So this is what I'm drinking as a daily basis. Really? Yeah. This is your own kind of meditation on him or memory yeah. of him? While I do that same job that he was doing, I think having the same drink is giving me more power and energy. Damn. Well, that is a story. Well, let's start in there. I mean, you know, I've known about your work and your agency for a long time. I think a lot of journalists and foreign correspondents have. Um, and uh, I've, I've known uh, one of, I guess, one of the guys who founded the agency with you and your brother also for a long time, Seb Myers, who is... Uh, now back in New York, but let's get started. I mean, it came through your brother who who had been a photographer. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about him. What was his name? What was he like? Kamran Najam. I'm actually the younger brother of Kamran, and we are his brothers. And uh, after 2003, when we had so many explosions after Saddam Hussein's fall, and he was going to Kirkuk and all the places that there were conflicts and terrorist attacks just to bring back photos from the local publications. Uh, he was just spreading the photos with them. And you guys, this was in Suleymaniyah? Uh, that was in Kirkuk. We were living in Suleymaniyah. But That's where you're from, right? We are from Kirkuk. We ah. are living in Suleymaniyah, but he was going back to Kirkuk Got it. to bring back the photos. Sometimes I was driving the car. Sometimes he was going by his own. And I still remember when he was coming back with the bloody photos from the explosions. Wow. And he was trying to show the photos to my sisters. And he was proud that he captured some, some photos. 
that there's conflict in it. And he was trying to share it with the Iraqi publications, but uh, it never worked because there was something wrong in it. There was something wrong in yeah. the photos or the publications? Understanding photography at that time, it was really hard because, you know, we had no academy. Still, there's no institute or university or any academy to teach you the, the exact way, the professional way uh, of taking photo as a photojournalist. So at that time, he was only taking photos of the explosions and the photographers themselves, they were competing each other of how they can get more bloody a photo so they can be proud of. So that's why in 2005, Cameron contacted his photo agency that he was in contact with and in contract. So the editor said, okay, what do you have? And Cameron said, I have a photo on one of the explosion in Kirkuk. And uh, the editor said, can you tell me how many killed? Cameron said, 13 people killed and some, some people injured. And the editor said, okay, Cameron, thank you for today. We are not going to take the photos because today we had another explosion in Mosul while 30 people killed and many more injured. So Cameron find, found out that there's something wrong in it. Mm -hmm. So that was a point that he started thinking about having our own agency. So he was not having any clue about making photo agency. So in 2008, he met Sebastian Meyer and they started thinking about founding the agency. So that's essentially as a freelance photographer, self-taught at that point, he had gotten a taste of the ghoulishness of the news business, mm -hmm. I guess, like just they need a high body count in order for a photo to matter to them. Exactly. And so, again, self-taught, trying to put together an agency, because I think at that point, Sebastian was also a, a freelance photographer. Yes. And, and uh, a, a, you know, a great photographer, but also no, no more school than putting an agency together than Kamran, I guess. Um, and the, but the, the ethos of the agency then was to present a more, like, humanized face to the war or to or just to have Iraqis making the decisions about what photos get commissioned maybe and 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 how you can create a market for that what was the founding principle at that time and still we as a Iraqi we are always proud of our civilization or we are criticizing our civilization and we are not accept what we are living in now so at that time Cameron was saying that we need to tell the tr true stories. We have to tell the positive stories, but not rejecting the negative stories. That was the, the way that we wanted to present the Iraqi stories, the daily basis. We wanted to make some subjects also to change the way that CNN or BBC is seeing Iraq and trying to give them some stories that they never got from the foreign photojournalists. I've been in Mosul and most of the cities in Iraq that had been attacked by ISIS. And most of the foreign journalists, they were coming for a couple of days, taking some bloody photos and uh, attack and front lines, and they were going back. And we were seeing that and we were witnessing that the photos going to be on the most famous publications, while the Iraqi photographers having the same content, but in positive side, but it was not taken by the international publications. So our goal was convincing the publications to share both of the stories, So which we did. And in 2012, one of our story about the, the labors, the, the daily life of the labors in Soleimania had been published on CNN. I still remember the celebration of the story. We had our drink and we were having party because some of the stories published while we were not expecting this. So that was the main goal to tell the stories from the Iraqi eyes, but not being racist, racist to the foreign photojournalists, just to making a debate about the stories. Right. So you weren't there to condemn the foreigners, uh, the foreign journalists who would come in. You were there to, to kind of just fill out the offerings from the country. Yeah. You know, we've had conversations. I, I did an interview with this for this show with Yuri Kozarev, who um, had come into Iraq 
a lot. And, you know, he, he, it's very interesting because he was sort of saying some of the same things you are. He was like, you know, the, especially later on in his period where working at time and other places, the, the assignments got shorter in length. And he was really being, you know, being asked, and he he just couldn't work like that. But he was being asked to go to a place like Iraq, cover conflict for three or four days, and then leave again. Um, And ultimately, it made him get out of that part of the business. You know, when I asked him what his, you know, what his greatest hope for Iraqi photography, I mean, for, I guess, Iraq in in general was, he said that he would really want to see Iraqis be able to tell their own story. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know... um, which is what you're doing, which is it's uh, which is one of the reasons why you know I think it's just uh, it's it's such a privilege to come and talk to you because you know it's almost like finishing that conversation with Yuri because you are who he was talking about. So tell me tell me something about Cameron. Like what what kind of person was he? Um, he was always making fun about anything, even the religion that most of my family is following, Islam. So. He was not easy to catch, and when whenever my father said anything about photography, he was listening but not doing it, because <laughs> because of his safety. Since 2003, my parents they were always saying that he will be injured badly or he will be dead one day. So for us, it was like we were living with it with these sentences every day. When there were like explosions in Baghdad. We knew that Cameron is in Soleimania, which is four, five hours far from Baghdad. But we were calling Cameron just to double check about his location because he was not easy. He was not staying at, at the offices. And when there was uh, any conflicts, protests, he was not sending photographers to the location. He was trying to go by himself. He was fa- sacrificing for photography. And that was what happened in the same day in 2012 of June 2014. Uh, we were on our way to come back to Soleimania, but he went to Kirkuk because he heard that there's some conflict between ISIS and Iraqi police and Peshmerga. So for me, Cameron is, is, a, is a person that I am following what he was saying. Sometimes even my friends are saying that, Ahmed, what are you doing? Like you are doing the same thing that Cameron was doing, even the, the drinks. I don't want to be like, like him as, as a carrier because what he did is, I cannot get it. I, I cannot go to the same point because he was a really, really great person and he was my teacher when I was Salafi, when I was really strong Muslim. He helped me to, to be out in this zone. So for me, Cameron is the one that saved my life. So I think he did that just to carry on of metrography. Now he's not here anymore. So I have to do the same job that he was doing. He, he brought you out and into his world so that you could continue. Exactly. Was his desire to get close to the conflict, was it bravery? Was it stubbornness? Was he afraid? He was not afraid. Even the videos, the photos that we have from the day that he injured and kidnapped by ISIS, you cannot see that he's afraid. The last sentence that Cameron said when he injured was, because we have a recorder from the day, he said, I love you all and I will die. So this is not the sentence from someone that is afraid. Maybe another person is going to start crying or shouting to the others but he was always trying to understand what happening and he was contacting the security forces from different parties groups to be with them to understand what's happening over the ground and so putting himself in in those positions which just a combination of feeling like he had to get the story and then having that gene that he was he was not going to be afraid for his own personal safety in order to get it. This is something that I can't blame Cameron. He was not thinking about his life. And uh, most of the Cameron's friends saying that what Cameron did and what happened to Cameron was expected, very expected, that one day he will be in this position and he will disappear. Because he was always giving like classes and teaching the other photographers how to be safe in the front line, but he didn't do that. 
Not for himself. No. Just for them. Yeah. Can you tell me about the the day that he was injured and kidnapped? What 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 happened? One day before, in eleventh of June, I was sitting in home in Soleimania, and I sent a message. While I knew that Cameron is in Arbil, and I was in Suli, two hours far from my city, so I said, Cameron, tomorrow I'm coming to Arbil to pick you up, and I will bring you back to Soleimania. He was so happy. I still have the text. He said, really? Okay, I'll be waiting in this hotel in, in Arbil. So I drove to Arbil in the morning. I met Cameron, and I said, okay, let's go back to Soleimania. And on our way back to Soleimania in the afternoon, he got a phone call from a secretary of the Peshmerga, a minister of Peshmerga. The Peshmerga is the, the Kurdish militia group yes. here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kurdish forces. So the guy said, oh, hi, Cameron, how are you doing? And they, they had a, just a friendly conversation and the phone closed immediately. And Cameron was trying to call him back. And after 10 minutes, the guy called again and said, sorry, Cameron, there was an explosion. There was an, there was an, an IED on our way. So we are fine, but now the fight is started. And Cameron asked me while I was one hour far from Soleimania, he said, Ahmed, can you take me to our bill? I said, but we are on our way to, to Soleimania. And that was two or three days after taking Mosul by ISIS. And he said, no, I want to go to Kirkuk and I will meet you in the evening. So I went back to Arbil and uh-huh. I took the same way to the uh, same road to drive him to Kirkuk. I left him over the street, the main street between Soleimani and Kirkuk Road. Taxi car was waiting for Cameron and he never hugged me when he said bye or I will see you. Because at that time, he said, I will see you in the evening. Well, it was afternoon, so doesn't need any hugging. But Cameron said, OK, let's hug. And he hugged me. This is some some details of what happened that is really hurting me. Why he hugged me while he, he knew that he will meet me after three or four hours. So we hugged and he left his Iraqi IDs. So when I, I saw the IDs and I, I called Cameron again when he was in the taxi, I said, take your ID. Because, you know, you cannot go to the front line if you don't... Was this a press badge or uh, no, just, just a uh, national citizenship? National yeah. citizenship, yeah. So he left. And after three to four hours in, uh, in at 6 p.m., I was sleeping when I heard that Cameron killed. And most of the, the local TV channel... They changed the, their program, all the news it was about Cameron because he was quite famous when he was a photojournalist, independent photojournalist. Mm. So this is what happened. But he wasn't killed. He wasn't killed. We knew that when we went back to Kirkuk in the morning of 13 of June, it was Friday. So we were waiting that Cameron's body will be in Kirkuk, inside Kirkuk, so we can take the, the body of Cameron to Soleimania. So Cameron called, and we spoke to Cameron. He said, his voice was terrible. He was so, so sick. He said, I injured over the, my neck, and I'm in a bad condition, and I'm bleeding. And he was asking us to go to the village or anywhere that Cameron disappeared like or kidnapped when the Iraqi forces left him behind. So he asked us to find the commander that left Cameron just to uh, make a conversation between the commander and the ISIS fighters. And we said, okay. And we were going around the villages just to find the commander. And the commander was not believing us that Cameron's still alive. He said, ISIS is playing and uh, this is a big game. We left Cameron when he died, so I don't believe you. His Cameron is alive, and we gave him the mobile to the commander. So they found out that Cameron is still alive, but because of not knowing or not having education, military education about how to deal with the terrorist groups that they are yeah. having your your prisoner. That's because of having a really bad conversation between the commander and 
ISIS fighters. So the commander called up the the people who were holding Cameron at that point. Yes. And and it didn't go well. No, because the commander was threatening the the fighters. If they are not, Cameron is an international person and Cameron is a really famous photojournalist. If you kill Cameron, I will destroy Hawija, which it was the city that Cameron was calling from. So what you are expecting if someone threatening like that? Yeah. So we heard that the ISIS fighters wanted to give cameras back because they knew that he's a journalist. But while the commander was threatening them like that, they found out that maybe Cameron is working for government or for the security forces. That's what they thought because they were so strong in... That was the point that most of our friends in this location, they were saying, oh, this commander made Cameron as like Obama. Yeah. So ISIS is not give, going to give Obama back. Yeah, right. I mean, it's such this in in a hostage situations everywhere. Just like trying to manage the value of the person that you have. So it's not too low. It's not too high or something. Like you said, these are things that um, that take experience and skill. And it sounds like the commander was just a hothead and didn't didn't know what he was doing. When this has happened after that. I became uh, a trainer for the Iraqi army and Peshmerga and all the security forces about journalism and education, how to deal with the groups that they have, your journalists, and how you, how, what's the, the best way to release them, to help the wow. case. So now this is what I'm doing. So they won't have that excuse to, you know, to not know to do that again. When I'm telling them about my experience during the teaching process, they are getting shocked. And I'm testing them, this is not my job to go to the, the bases, the security bases. But when I'm doing this, at the end of the class, I'm so happy. Yeah. At least they can save more journalists. So for, for someone else um, to have a better outcome in that same situation. Exactly. So from that point on, it was just silence from from Cameron. Yeah. And I remember I remember that period of time when Sebastian, you know, was uh, telling people not to publicize this at all. And you were you were also staying very quiet about Cameron's exactly. disappearance. Um, and that was your attempt to to have a smarter approach towards dealing with ISIS. Why 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 was there a media blackout? Uh, on on the fact that he was still alive and or had been taken alive by ISIS. For me, what I can describe about this position was it was killing me for two years. We were not saying anything. It was the same situation of leaving your baby in a jungle and you know that there's wolf inside the jungle. If you call your baby, you will find it, but the wolf is going to eat it. Going to get it first. Yeah, so for us it was so hard. When I was meeting journalists, I was trying to tell them about my pain and how I am dealing and how I am going to meet the head of that tribe and also going to the older presence with, with Sebastian and getting information from Iraqi intelligence but not be able to share it with the with publications and media. It was so, so hard. We did it because we noticed that ISIS is really smart in watchdogging all the publications. So we decided in the fourth day after Cameron's disappearance. And uh, when we said, okay, let's break this blackout, it was because not getting any new information about Cameron. And it had been long enough. I mean, you guys spent two years searching. Like you said, you went to prisons, you went to villages, you talked to different tribes in the area. That just sounds like an excruciating process, but you thought that you thought that something could come of it. I was going to the mass graves that found by Iraqi government, and I was stealing bones and uh, hairs from the dead bodies just to take it to Soleimani International Hospital to check about the DNA. And one day, the doctor of the hospital asked me and said, "Ahmed, let's talk." Because you brought 73, something like this number of different 
bones and hairs from dead bodies and you are doing this as a daily basis this is not really good for you i totally understand that you lost your brother but this is killing you and i was saying i don't do that as a brother i i, I do it as a journalist why i'm disappointed by government they are not doing anything about Cameron because he was independent and you know being independent in Iraqi is like being another prophet to say that Islam is not true there's another religion so this is same for the government and uh, not that syndicate not the course none, none of the people helped us they were just saying we are with you and that was not enough I, I want to witness taking out of the, the dead bodies and find out if they are my brothers or not. I still remember the first grave that I was there when they, they opened it and I was not afraid. I was just focusing on the faces and the clothes just to find out about my brother. And that was a, my, my nightmare for many months. So I, I am not doing this right now. I'm not stealing at least the, the bones and the hairs, but if I get this opportunity, I will do it again because... So you I, don't agree with the doctor that this is killing you or this is taking it too far? This is two sides story. Of course, he's saying true, but at this other side, I cannot make my mom to understand what happened to Cameron. He didn't see any bodies. And this is the same situation of the people that they witnessed Anfal in '88. Yeah. when 180,000 people disappeared and they're still waiting for dead bodies or maybe having them alive. Yeah, that's the genocide that Saddam and Chemical Ali perpetrated on the Kurds and, and I guess some Syrian Christian towns too. But it's like this process of having mass graves and unearthing them and having to figure out what happened to whom. This is, a, this is an old story in this part of the world. How do you take care of yourself? Um, because surely... That's something that Cameron would have wanted, too. I mean, do you ever think about releasing yourself from, from the obligation of what happened to him? Until the point that I'll find the, the body or Cameron as alive, I cannot stop looking for him. This is not something that I swear to find out. No, I do it as a journalist. And I want to prove it that this is another victim of having like because Cameron always saying that we don't have a terrorist we have a bad experience of dealing with with people so they became terrorists because of having all this problem and not being solved we have so many embassies and consulates in Iraq and Erbil they are not working about the exact education that we need as a communities and I this is what I said to most of the like the ambassadors and the consul yeah, you had the Dutch ambassador came by recently, yeah, uh, right, um, uh, to metrography in Sulaymaniyah. So this is the kind of stuff you're telling him. It's like, here's what you guys should be thinking about. We are always having a conversation, not just with uh, Eric and uh, Matthijs. We I met a French consulate, uh, consul and also the others in, in, in Baghdad. I'm always pushing them just to make a debate about edu- education, for example, ISIS is finished, but what about post-ISIS, which for me is more dangerous than ISIS itself? During ISIS, we knew that, who, like, who's the people that we are in fight? But after ISIS, while we have post-ISIS in Mosul and the other territories, there's some kids that they don't have Iraqi IDs. They are thinking about their identities, but they cannot get it. They have to be in school right now. They are seven years old. They don't have it. Believe me, they are thinking about revenge one day. If it is not today, it's going to be after two or three years. Now we have a, a factory of making new terrorists, new strong and like uh, racist people, just yeah. to revenge about what happened to them. To, to the ISIS exactly. territories. And ISIS, you're right. I mean, they had fought almost as an army they had tried to they had controlled territory they uh, had made their last stands it's very different than imagining a dozen people wandering around Erbil which is very safe right now but uh, if you have terrorists who are you know bent on sort of non non-military 
terrorism, I guess, then that's what you're worried about yeah. is that it could spread almost invisibly just through hopelessness and lack of opportunities and education. We met many prisoners when they were 13, 14 years old, but they beheaded Peshmergers and Iraqi policemen. And we were asking them why. And they were saying, we had no clue about beheading people or following what Baghdadi was saying. But we did this because of having a bad experience when we were sitting in home in Fallujah and our parents and my sister got raped, my parents got killed because they were Sunni and Shia was not treating them well. I know this is interior problem in Iraq, we should solve it by ourselves. But when there's a meeting between the, the foreign peoples and the Iraqi responsible people, there should, shouldn't be any appreciation from the foreign countries to the Iraqi. Yeah. They have to be ashamed as an Iraqi that they cannot solve this small problem, which mm. is going to create terrorist groups. So what I'm seeing as a daily basis from press and while I'm witnessing the press conferences, that all the first sentence that they are saying, uh, we are proud of having this meeting. But I'm, I'm sure that they are talking about transferring more weapons, providing more security training. But what about the civilians? What about education in the school and helping the, the, the communities to make a peace building process faster? For example, as our agency, we are making sure that we have a photographer from Christians and Muslims and Yazidian. And while we are limited for our agency, we are not a, we are not having a big budget. Why the government is not doing right. this? Yeah, and this I, is yeah. If you go to Metrography's website, it's actually there, and your kind of mission statement is to be a diverse group. Which you know, I think that's something that goes a little underappreciated over uh, over in the U.S., which knows far less about Iraq uh, than it should, <laughs> considering our deep role in in all of this mayhem. Uh, but it, it is an incredibly diverse uh, and, and very divided country. I mean, just last night, Genghis and I went to the Teachers Club, which is a bar that is run by Christians and Kurds are not allowed and Arabs are not allowed. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, you just take one example of like where people gather to, to watch soccer and, and spend the evening. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's very tricky. But you don't do it by, you know, you don't get any progress by, by excluding groups. And I think that's why metrography matters is because it's run by Iraqis who know things like this. Like maybe the most important thing isn't, you know, the, the volume of photos sold to the wires, but it's that you're creating a, a community of people across different ethnic groups and religions because that's what this country is. Yeah. And when I'm getting a phone call from a Christian photographer that they want to make a story about the Muslim community, this is a, my best time in metrography. When, the, when I have an Arab trainer is training the Kurd photographer, this is the time of being in heaven and paradise. So having this, we cannot reject that we have like a different group of people. We cannot reject Arab or other communities. And when we are working together, this is the time that we are more effective and telling the true stories. And uh, in metrography, we have 74 photojournalists from Basra to Zaho, all the provinces. And we are focusing on gender balance in, in our photo, photo network. So we have 25 female photojournalists wow. from different backgrounds and different <laughs> perspectives. Some of them, they are doing art photography and journal. They are not, all of them, they are not able to take international assignments. We have uh, 18 core photographers that they can take assignments. But for the others, they are working for the local publications. And recently, we were focusing on copyright law mm. that we don't have it in Iraq. And that's why by implementing this, this law, uh, we can make some income by selling photos to the local publications. I mean, talk about shame and who should feel it. Like, I, I, I hope that U.S.-based publications are listening to this and getting a sense of even the numbers of female photographers, which way outstrips what you'll see in a lot of publications. Uh, you know, women, uh, women photographers is this kind of organization that kind of keeps a headcount and will tell you like yeah. how many. Um, you know, front page New York Times photos were taken by women and 
it's always i mean the numbers are ghastly it's like 15 percent on a good day you know of like the front pages and you had mentioned that Kamran had had sort of pulled you out of salafism uh, as a worldview i guess can you tell me about that time in your life and and how it how it affects your understanding of you know groups that are nominally religious and extreme religious groups here I was working as a driving instructor in my driving office uh, back to 2006. I joined my brother, my older brother, older than Cameron, uh, in 2006 to start helping my my family financially. So it was out of Soleimania. And because of the, the people that I was working with, they were all from an Islamic background. They were always reading Quran and they were talking about hadith, prophets' words and sentences. And they were always having debates and they were proud of talking only about Islam. And as a young boy to be with them. How old were you? At that time, I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. I was just listening to them and I wanted to be a man, but I, I, I couldn't decide which man I wanted to be. So when I was looking at my older brother as, as a role model for all the family, and my parents always was proud of, of this brother because he was making money and he was respected by the family because he was following Islamic rules. So I wanted to be like him. I joined the driving office as a daily basis. I was, I was reading Quran. I was changing my voice. While they were reading it in Arabic, I was translated to Kurdish in, uh, in a really good, good way. So I still do that just for fun <laughs> while I change my voice. Why do you change your voice? What, what does it go higher or lower? It's going to be so like straight and people can, I can get more attention. Can, uh, can you do it for the mic? Do you have an example? In, in Kurdish? Yeah. Okay. برای خدای بخشنده و مهربان برای خدایی که کانگای رحمت و سوز و بزیه This is what I was doing <laughs> Oh my God I'm, Sign me up man, I'm converting <laughs> It's crazy, I was like watching the satellite television here and they have preachers on, you know, as they do in the States they've got like imams, uh, we've got our Christian preachers but that's that's like the, the voice they use, you know it's like a very strong, commanding, yet kind of intimate uh, Exactly, and <laughs> I was doing it in Arabic sometime as well and uh, when I was uh, watching uh, Al Jazeera English or Arabic so there was some voice over over the documentary video so I was doing the same one so they really liked my voice and they wanted me to have beards so I couldn't do that because I was 17 and I was always shaving just to have a little bit of beard so uh, for four years, I was with them. I was so proud. And uh, I was proud because of, not ha- because of not seeing the other side of the life, which my brother Cameron was experiencing it. I was calling him. I was fighting with him. And I was not a really even friend with him when I, I was hearing from some of my family members that Cameron was with the foreign and going to the club and he's visiting Europe and US so I was always saying this is not the right way as a younger brother I was trying to convince him not to be Muslim just to be in the the, the people to be a person that people wanted mm-hmm. unfortunately this is most of the people that this is the way that most of the people I I knew that they were doing the same thing that's that's what they thought about someone who would go to a club. Exactly. It's just like an undesirable, a black sheep. Exactly. Uh-huh. Which I did the last recent <laughs> years. It wasn't like that. Yeah. So Cameron was trying to take me out of this closed life by a really smart moves. He was always asking me in a really kind way to join him for some workshops and to be a coordinator for some works. At that time, in 2008, 9, 10, I was meeting Sebastian Meyer, but I, was, but I was not able to speak in English. I was just saying, hi, how are you? And that was it. 
and I was saying, how are you in the really disgusting way? How are you? <laughs> so it was oh, like, a, nice. <laughs> it was like a <laughs> Russian to speak in English. <laughs> so one day I was sitting in the office thinking about God, Prophet, Islam, my students, this kind of stuff. And I got a phone call from someone, a taxi driver that came from Suleymania to this location that I was living in, Hajiawa, which it was two hours and 30 minutes far from Suli. And he said, you are Ahmed and I have something for you. I'm a taxi driver. Can you come to pick it, pick it up? I said, okay. I had no clue. I took the box. It was a box. It was 16 August 2010. I still have this small letter with the box. I, I opened the box first because it was a bigger. There were sweet and desserts in it. Whoever sent me this this box, they knew that I really in love with sweets and <laughs> Did desserts. Did you have there. a sweet tooth? Okay. And when I opened the letter, it was a small letter from no one. I didn't know. I just started reading it and it was, this is what it, it was written, uh, written in this letter. Happy Nowruz. Nowruz is a Kurdish New Year. Yeah. And uh, and happy independent Hamilton Independency. And happy Hamilton Independence Day? Uh, yeah. Okay. What's and that? I, I, I still have it. I don't know what. Okay. But it was about just greeting someone. Okay. And at the end of the letter said, uh, Happy birthday, my brother. This is your brother, Kamran Najm. 16 August 2010. At that time, I had no birthday party in my life. And when I started reading it, it was shocking. I was thinking about being happy and being angry while I'm Muslim and really strong Muslim. Should I laugh about it or should I cry about it? Because this is from your brother that thinking about you, sending you sweets and desserts from far from the city. That was the first moment in my life that I started thinking about what is there in the other side of the life? What Cameron's doing? How he can think this peacefully? Like how he can send me this kind of stuff while I'm in fight with him? So after that, I, I was meeting Cameron more and more. And he asked me to join him to go to Georgia, Tbilisi and Batumi, while there was a photo festival there. Oh, yeah. The one that Nestan Nicharazzi puts exactly. on. Yeah. yeah. That's a beautiful festival. Yeah. yeah. Nestan is one of our great friends. So I, I left the driving office and I joined Cameron to be a coordinator for metrography since 2011. I was visiting my other brother just to tell him that I'm sorry, I can still help you, but I cannot be with you guys. And one day <laughs> we were making joke about the radio of, of, of my car, which one day I, I played a music, but a friend of mine said, Ahmed, even the radio cannot play the music because you played many, many times Quran and the others. So even the radio cannot... This radio is now holy and is not allowed to play pop music. Exactly, but even the, the speakers cannot allow to uh. <laughs> to play the music. So this is how... That's how the life was. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of amazing to me because I feel like, you know, as someone, I've got some... A lot of Christians in in my family who were some are who were very conservative, some of whom were very very liberal. Um, you know, Christianity like Islam often says that it has a monopoly on love. You know, like mm -hmm. like like they they know what love is and how to communicate it. And yet, I know from you know being from a mixed family and just living in this world that that uh, that often, or I would say just as many times, it's non-believers who who really know like i mean you, you know the kind of love the kind of relationship that it sounds like you had with your brother like that's a that's a fucking spiritual thing you know like that's something holy like you can't if that's a word you want to use for it like you can't you can't deny it on the basis of not following religious rules right i mean yeah. they they just don't get to say that that's not valid that your brother's not a good person because 
the people he knows or the things he chooses to do with his life yeah. when he's showing, you know, I am a good person. This is what I do. Why do you think he chose you? You were the one in the family who was really fighting him. You have so many brothers and sisters. He had so many friends. You know, why, why do you think he invested the time um, to fight back, <laughs> to, to, to win? Cameron was this kind of person that he was thinking about loyalty a lot. He was not trusting sometimes even the close friends. Because of the experience that he had from the different jobs that he was doing before metrography, he was not easy to believe you. That he was always talking about something just to get no more information, just to, to understand that this kind of person. For me, being a, a younger brother of Cameron, before 2006, we were always together because our age was close to each other and I was far for four years. So after that, we came back again because my two brother, two of my brothers, they were living in Germany. They are still in Germany. And the other two in the middle, one of them was having this driving office and the other one was in Sweden, Germany, and he's still in, in Europe. So we were the only two brothers that we had to support each other. Yeah. And Najat, which it was a Salafi brother, he was older than being back to this reality and this life. And Cameron was disappointed. So he was trying to support me and giving me education and giving me education about photojournalism and why, why metrography should be an independent so this is the same way that I'm fighting for metrography right now. There's, there's still some great experience that happened during Cameron's time that I want to get some benefit from and using the same strategy to metrography. Just to give you an example, when Cameron disappeared, we had just Soleimania office as a main office. We had eight to ten photojournalists. And that was metrography mm -hmm. with the website. Now we have four offices in Iraq. Arbil, Soleimania, Kirkuk, and Baghdad. Our network is improved to 73 or to 74 photojournalists. Wow. We had two female photojournalists in 2014. Now we have 25 photojournalists, females. And now we have our own annual photo festival. Last year we provided... 62 workshops and training for free for photojournalists. I was traveling to give a education to the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga, Kurdish Peshmerga, regarding journalism rights and how to protect them. We had so many challenges, but we, we crossed and we were successful because of Cameron's spirit, because of always thinking about what's Cameron doing. I put all the Cameron stuff, his camera, his bag, even the, 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 the bottle of the water that he left in the day, 12th of June. I put everything in a box in our office. So whoever come into our office, the first thing that they see is Cameron stuff. I told my employees, which they are my friends, to think about Cameron before doing any project to metrography. So we, sh we have to be loyal and we have to think about professionalism and also to be independent. So this is what we were doing. Cameron was thinking about bringing WordPress photo to, to Iraq. And that was the last project that was Cameron was always talking about. I, I like how this story is going to end. Yeah, okay. <laughs> go ahead. He was thinking about bringing a part of the exhibition and whenever he was coming back from Europe, he was always having books from WordPress Photo. Yeah, WordPress is the, you know, it's, it's, it's the leading light, I guess, of international photojournalism. Yeah. So my dream was just to bring this part, a small part of this exhibition to Soleimania, just to say Cameron's dream achieved. But last year, I got an email from WordPress Photo that... For this year's contest, 2019, I'm one of the juries. 
So I was a jury. And the exhibition will be in Iraq this month. Not a part of it, but the, the last three years. The contents of 2017, 18, 19 will be not in Suleimania. It's going to be in Baghdad for three weeks, in Arbil three weeks, and in Suleimania. My so, God, that's so amazing. This is the first time that I'm talking about this timeline and the exhibition because we are not announced as a date now, but this is what we are doing at. And uh, none of the Metrographies members are believing this achievement. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. I mean, because that is the real, the dream and goal of Metrography is to have Iraqis counted among their peers internationally as a, a formidable force in photojournalism, uh, people who are professional and talented and know and organized and know how to tell their own story and being able to get the, uh, the most prestigious exhibition in photojournalism to come and spend a good part of the year traveling through Iraq is, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know how to communicate it to people who don't know about journalism that much, but it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. So I was calling people in Mosul to find out about Cameron when this city was under ISIS control. They were always saying, who is Cameron? Why we don't know him? And you are always saying he was a famous photojournalist and he was helping the others. And I was saying, okay, forget about he was a photojournalist, just I need Cameron, his buddy or Cameron's as a life. He was always saying, we are sorry, we don't have any information. I was calling and for two or three times I was in jail in Suli and Arbil because I had a direct contact with ISIS families just to find out about my brother. And the security forces knew that I'm doing this because of Cameron. And they were always asking me, please, Ahmed, don't do that because this is illegal. When Mosul liberated, I introduced Cameron to the like, Iraqi people in Mosul by taking our photo festival at that time when it was there's still some dead bodies under the houses, but I took the exhibition to Mosul and I printed Cameron's photos and our photographer's photos, which it was 40 photos. Wow. And I had a huge welcome by people from Mosul and they got new about Cameron and they found out who is Cameron and why he's so special to us. So this is the way that we are working just to doing the thing that we want, which is looking for Cameron, but not the classic way to go to police or Iraqi army. We knew we have to go to Mosul and introduce Cameron's works to Iraqi people, that he was making stories about Sunni, Shi'i, and all the other communities, and he was independent. So they were really proud, and I still have some videos of the people that they are crying in the exhibition. Because I asked the same people that they, they were telling me who is Cameron yeah. by telephone. So they came to the <laughs> exhibition I and know. they said, we are sorry, we didn't know him. So it was so special. You, I have to go back to this. They, you went to jail a few times just for talking to the wrong people about Cameron, talking to ISIS families and so on. How long did they put you in prison for and, and how... Are they doing it because they're just fed up with your relentlessness or uh, they know you're not actually working with, you know, ISIS or anything? They know you, but they, they still put you in jail. Yeah, because, you know, when you are getting arrested in Iraq, you will be in the in the jail the first day without having any investigation. You have to smell the <laughs> the rooms. So for the second day, they will come to you. Most of the time. And this is what happened to me. And I didn't stay more than two days in the jail because when they found out about my name, Cameron's name, checking Google, they knew this. And thank you for Google because without Google, police and the security for forces are not really quick at their <laughs> job. They don't have a, a, an exact document to check your name. They have to go Google at first. I mean, that's kind of great and then also a little terrifying. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this is how our photos are getting st stolen by Iraqi publications. They are going to Google to to write photographer's name or metrography. Oh. They are taking photo with the logo without mentioning their names. Yeah. But they were finding out, they were checking if I am related to them. But at the first conversation, they knew that. Because, for example, the prime minister of Kurdistan, 
mentioned Cameron's name in one of the press conference when he disappeared. He said, we are not talking about him because we are looking for him. This is a special case. And the beauty of Prime Minister was a friend of Cameron. And he was taking photos of them for the international publication. So they know him really well. But they were asking me to stop doing this kind of like uh, trying and uh, looking for Cameron because for me as a young young boy in Suleimania, I was just calling people and I was not old enough to go to meet the head of the tribes, which I did one time, but it was so terrible. So uh, it was not easy to find out about Cameron without making this conversation with the ISIS families. Because you were too young and not well connected enough to go exactly. right to the top of these groups. I, I couldn't speak in Arabic at that time. Now mm. I'm speaking in Arabic the same in English, which is okay. And <laughs> That's incredibly impressive. Yeah. And after that, I was making phone calls in Kurdish and mixing it with Arabic just to understand Arabs. But now I'm teaching, I'm, I'm providing training to the Arab people by Arabic language. So the Cameron case taught me English, Arabic, safety and the others. How does the story end? This is the same cursor that I have. I don't know. Maybe... I'm always thinking about years and even when now I'm married and when I'm thinking about babies, I'm always trying to compare in the age of my baby with Cameron's comes back or the funeral. I'm always saying, okay, I want to find Cameron's body when my kid is six years old just to be able to explain. I don't want to be three years old when I cannot explain what happened to Cameron. This is something that I'm thinking about before I sleep, but uh, I meet Cameron most of my nights. And the first dream that I had about Cameron, that was the same story that I hear from the security forces that Cameron is killed. The day that I, I met Cameron, I saw Cameron in my dream, it was 14th of June, 2014 when my family was so happy that Cameron is still alive and we are celebrating that Cameron is still alive, he called us. So let's try to find out about how we can bring Cameron to, to Soleimania. And we were so happy. But one day I, I woke up and I said, Cameron is not alive. And everyone in my family, they were swearing at me and they said, don't say this again. But I said, Cameron came to me and said, I'm dead. Today, they killed me. Come, uh, he asked us as a brothers, come and take my body back to Suleimania. And they said, no, don't mention this story again. This is bad dream. This is your nightmare. It doesn't, it's, it's not correct. But three months after, when we were checking about the days that Cameron disappeared or killed, it was the same day that I had it in my dream. I never believed in my dream. I still. But this dream is really special. And I want to find out if it is true or not. 99% I don't, I'm not positive about Cameron. As, as he is alive, but... 99% you don't believe he is alive? No. And you think he was killed on the 14th of June? Not comparing it to my dream, but up to the fact that we got it from security forces and different sources that they don't know each other. So they are saying the same story. While we had a thousand of different stories from different peoples. But you don't, you don't know to trust your dream on that. There's some sort of fact, fact basis that you think. When, when I'm, I'm saying 99% is, is not alive, this is because of the, the information that we got from different people, also the dream that I had. How can people support uh, metrography? Which is, you know, if you're, if you're still looking for Cameron, I think, you know, he's, he's there in your agency. What, what, what can people do to, to help support the mission? 
sharing the true stories from Iraq. And this is what they can do. And making the normal stories to be highlighted by international publication. We want to share the daily life of our people and the climate change stories and the pollution and not not running from the politi- politician political stories but we are making stories about post isis and the returnees of the idps but we are optimistic about the future of iraq if we have more people in our agency and any different organization but sharing our stories and supporting emotionally supporting our photographers to stay in iraq this is quite enough for us because recently we lost eight of of our four journalists they left the country now they are living in europe they are really talented some of them are living in europe in uk also in us when we are talking with them they don't do anything but they are talented when they were here yeah so and they're just working some other job or yeah just trying to survive recently i brought back two of them uh, i offered a contract now they are back in sulaimania wow but this is going to happen again because there there's still six of our foreigners living in europe and they left because of we had a financial crisis we had conflicts but i still remember in 91 in 96 when we were refugees in iran two times we had a really bad con- condition but we were not thinking about leaving the country but they disappointed by the government reaction mm-hmm. through the the press freedom and also uh, the safety of journalists when i ask them to go to make a story they are always saying what if we be in the same situation like cameron hmm. what's what's your alternatives and i'm saying i don't have anything yeah so most of them they want to be they they want to sacrifice themselves even their life for some stories but should be respected by international publications when it comes about professionalism i'm always with them we have to be more professional but when it comes about taking stories and telling stories as iraqi we know better and our eyes wider than the others we can support the foreigners we can learn from them but we can make uh, a projects together for example in 2015 we had a map of displacement project which it is a combination project between iraqi photographers which it was metrographic photographers and also foreign writers the writers were foreign they were writing stories and our photographers captured some photos mm. it was amazing project supported yeah. by free press unlimited organization and now it's available they can check the the stories would it be weird if i asked you to uh end the episode back in your um beautiful hadith voice so that we can fade out i just want to hear it a little bit one more time kategusuti bauchi barazam menam shawla khawnam da yanzas tero khurumangam diwa sudan babardum lanjab da yaqubi bauchi pewit kurishidinam aw khawnito nishane pa meshi gawre wiya balai brakanat basinaki chunka shaitan hamishaha wal insanakan It's really remembering me about the old life. Thank you, Ahmed. You're welcome. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Emily Marinoff was our producer on this episode. Taffy Mulkanyadze, our consulting producer. Alexa Van Sickle is our editor. Music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Genghis Yar is the producer on this and all of our Iraq episodes. Quick recommendation. The Rough Translation podcast did a deep dive into Kamran and Ahmed's story. It is really, really good, really moving. There is a link in the show notes. Next week, halfway across the world from Iraq, 
The Mission District has a lot to say about what the hell is going to happen to San Francisco. We'll start there with the badass artist Vero Mahano, co-founder of the Mission Media Archives and a damn good drinking buddy. We will meet you there. <laughs> 